because I wasn't tolerating guys that, that were going to be pouty or moody when their teammate was doing a good job and they weren't having a good day. I just wasn't going to accept that, and I never will. And I think any coach that's worth their salt, if you're teaching life skills as well as basketball skills, you're getting players to understand the value of their teammates, no matter where they are as a player. And no matter what they average, no matter what they do, they've got to understand the value of their teammates. The Holding Court Podcast is powered by Fundraising University Ohio. Fundraising University Ohio offers a variety of fundraising efforts that help basketball teams run profitable, effective, and fast-paced fundraisers designed to raise the most money in the shortest amount of time to reach their fundraising goals. Fundraising University Ohio is locally owned and operated, and with their six-step blitz system, will help your team maximize profits. As a former basketball coach himself, Brent Maxwell will sit down and help you pick, plan, strategize, and execute your fundraiser, which will allow you as a coach to devote more time to the other aspects of your program. If you're looking to take your fundraising efforts to the next level, contact Brent Maxwell at bmaxwell at fundraisingu.net or 740-501-8946 to learn more. Welcome to Holding Court, presented by the Ohio High School Basketball Coaches Association. Join hosts Adam Hall and Walt Serrato as they sit down with some of the biggest names in Ohio high school basketball and beyond. This show and all of our shows are available to listen to completely free anywhere that you can find podcasts. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Let's get to it. Hello, it's Adam Hall here with my co-host Walt Serrato, and we are excited to be joined by Tom Crean, former head men's basketball coach at Marquette, Indiana, and Georgia, and current college basketball analyst for ESPN. Coach, thank you for joining us, and welcome to the Holding Court Podcast. Hey, thank you. I, it's been, I've been looking forward to this. I loved being at the uh, Coaches Association Clinic in Ohio last year, and it's an honor to be on the podcast with both of you. Well, Coach, I guess the first question I have for you is, how are you doing? What are you doing? And how are you trying to take full advantage of the time you currently have to continue to get better and grow, you know, not only as a coach, but also as a husband, a father, a friend, you name it? Well, I think when you're a coach, and I learned this along the way by the people that helped me, but especially when you're a head coach, you learn that your responsibility to your players, to the coaching staff, to the support staff, you got to try to make them great every day, right? Like you've got to come in with a plan for them. And in recruiting, it certainly starts with having a vision for where they can be. And so you're working at that constantly. Well, when you don't have that, now you really have yourself, right? And I still have coaches, you know, my former coaches and, and that I have and, and, and people that played for me that move into coaching. we got former players that are playing in the NBA, playing in Europe. There's plenty of things to keep busy with trying to help people. And certainly I have my family, but the bottom line is I'm trying to get better constantly. And I think television has helped me with that because that gives me a forum to be able to take uh, what I see, what I hope. Uh, Hopefully no, but most importantly, what I'm learning. And so really for me, I, I got my most energy when I was coaching from being on the floor with the players, especially in individual workouts or in practice and by studying and preparing for games or studying recruits. And I don't get the opportunity right now to be on the floor with the players, but I do have the opportunity to learn and get better. And at the same time, that, that also includes reading. It includes traveling here and there. Uh, one great thing for me a couple of weeks ago was at the NCAA Academy 
uh, in Memphis. I loved that. It was a chance. I was a, an assistant commissioner to Gary Waters and Al Skinner. There was a chance to be around uh, basically a thousand different players, a ton of other coaches, great support staff, and just to be a part of it, right? And try to give back, but at the same time, try to learn. So every opportunity that I have for that, I'm going to take it, but I'm fully happy hours upon hours in a day, just studying different films, whether it's college, whether it's pro, whether it's Europe, individuals, you know, whatever it is, and have that plan and, and take my notes and get better. So coach, we talk about it a lot. And I think especially with, with, with mental health, how that's become more at the forefront of our everyday lives. And, you know, investing in your own self-care in this profession can be difficult, but it's something that's definitely essential if you want to experience success personally and professionally. And talk a little bit about the importance of self-care to you, some of the positives that you've experienced um, in your own life. And maybe on the flip side, uh, was there ever a time which maybe you had a lack of self-care and it had a negative effect on your team or on your program? Oh, there's no question. I mean, I've had different I've had different issues in coaching where uh, I had to go to the emergency room or the hospital because it, it might feel like there's something wrong in my heart where really it's just an anxiety attack, those type of things. You know, you push yourself so hard and you think you're keeping in shape, but a lot of times that stress just wears you down. And a couple of things for me, Al McGuire said early on, Tom, you got to take care of your stomach. He said, no matter what you do, you got to take care of your stomach because you coach through your stomach. He said, if your stomach is messed up, your coaching is going to be messed up. And he was so right. Like you think about how many times you go deep uh, when, when, when you're when you really, uh, you're, how, how your gut feels, how your stomach feels, how the stress and anxiety feels. But where you got to come to bring your intensity, where you got to come to bring your energy. And he was so right. And I didn't always listen at Marquette. I wasn't great. I was in shape. But I think a lot of it is I was in shape because I was on a stress diet, right? Or I was moving around so much in practice and games that I really wasn't gaining weight, right? Like I'm losing weight during the season. I've had, se I've had seasons where I've lost 25, 27 pounds during the season. And it wasn't always healthy. Well, when I got to Indiana, I did a much better job of conditioning, staying in shape. Like I always lifted or did sporadic things at uh, Marquette. Like the players will joke that they never saw me do anything with my legs, but it was always upper body at Marquette. They're right. Like I didn't even think about that stuff. But at Indiana, I've gotten better every year. And in fact, at Georgia, I even had a personal trainer a couple of days a week, which I'd never done before. But like, I wanted to make sure I was doing it right. Now, I have no trouble with that. I probably lift four to five days, closer to five days a week. I walk distance. I run. Uh, during COVID, I spent countless times, anywhere from 12 to 24 miles a day on the bike. Uh, outside, being outside. I live in Florida, so it's so easy. But you have to do it. You have to eat right. You have to drink enough water. I still drink coffee and Diet Coke, but at the end of the day, I'm trying to eat so much better. And you just cannot trick yourself into thinking you're losing weight or staying in shape because you're just on the practice floor or you're just losing weight because you're moving so much and you're not eating right. You just can't. You got to do everything you can do possibly. Listen to the right people, get the right program. And I certainly wish I'd have been doing that younger in my career, but I do it now. I love that. Coaching with your, I never yeah. heard this before. I love it. I'm going to jot that one down. When you, when you go deep and you're, and you're yelling or raising your voice. I mean, I had numerous practices where my stomach hurt and it wasn't because of cramping or something I ate, right? It was just because my stomach hurt. It was like, man, I just did 350 sit-ups without a break, right? Like I've never done 350 sit-ups without a break, but some days you walk out of coaching and you could equate that. 
And I think you have to be so smart. Al McGuire taught me so much that I still remember to this day. Some I started to do right away. Some it took me a little bit longer like that. Well, Coach, let's go back to the beginning of your collegiate coaching career and talk about two notable mentors you had in Judd Heathcote and Tom Izzo in Michigan State. So in total, you were there for for five years in Michigan State with stops in between at Western Kentucky and Pittsburgh. Obviously, Coach Heathcote and a guy by the name of Magic Johnson kind of helped elevate and put Michigan State on the map. But Tom Izzo and the brand that he built took it to a whole nother level. When you arrived at Michigan State, how long did it take you to realize that Tom Izzo was going to be special? And in your opinion, what has allowed him to experience that sustained success he has had in East Lansing for the past 28 years? Well... Tom is one of those guys that from a young age on, when I was coaching uh, at Division Three, getting started at Division Three in Elma College and coaching at Mount Pleasant High School, that a lot of people were nice to me, but he took it another step. Like he let me travel with him. He set up a trip one time for us to go to Pittsburgh and the five-star camp, uh, the Kreider camp in Cincinnati and the BC camp in Rensselaer, Indiana and drive it where he would have flown, but he, but he allowed me to go with him. And so I'd help with the driving and I'd take a lot of notes. He wanted to put in a new recruiting program. But I think back to those days and I realized like this guy, he's investing in me, right? So I had some other opportunities as a GA to go other places, but like there was no doubt I was going there. I mean, it was $7,200 and it was like the equivalent of, to me, 720000 right? Like I was going to a place that I had great respect for. It was an hour and 15 minutes from my home. Judd Heathcote was an absolute legend and, and myself and... Jim Boylan, you know, who's won over 300 or been in part of over 300 playoff games, was the head coach of the Chicago Bulls. We lived with Tom. So I think early on when I was with Judd and Judd was the head coach and Tom was the associate head coach, I knew Tom was like Tom epitomized grind. I think that I think that's such an overused word. And one of the reasons I think it is because I worked with Tom Izzo. Like he epitomized what that really meant. And when I look at the success that Thomas had, there's there's a couple of things. I'm not sure I saw it yet. When, when I was a GA before I went to Western Kentucky, though, I, I just loved Tom, right? I didn't necessarily see all that yet. But I think during our four years, especially in year three, when we started out five and three, we'd lost to Detroit for the third straight year, and which was tough, right? Because now, now all of a sudden, there's a lot of unrest. And the first year, you, you not only is Tom replacing Judd Heathcote, but he's also trying on Respert and he's trying to replace Eric Snow, two guys that left for the NBA, right? So like those things change things. But after that five and three, okay, we play Wright State on a Wednesday night and we win the game by close to 30. Well, our first television game now okay, is going to be, we are now six and three. Our first television game is going to be at South Florida, University of South Florida with Seth Greenberg. It's ESPN2. We had to go on the road to get on television. We go there. We win the game on a Saturday afternoon. George Steinbrenner's there. Wayne Fonts is there. It's sold out. It's packed. We drew seven charges in that game. And from that point on, if you looked at Tom Izzo's record from being five and three at the beginning of year two to where it was from that right state game on, it's one of the highest winning percentages you could possibly have. And I think if I was going to sum him up and why he's great, I would start with this. He came there at probably $7,000 as a third assistant, graduate assistant from Northern Michigan. He never, ever lost that. He's never lost. He's never lost that work ethic. He's a very confident guy now. I mean, we saw, I, I, I think I was definitely a part of watching his confidence grow, but he wasn't always confident. And he came there with a mindset that he was going to prove that he could do the job. And Tom always said it. He made his hay at Michigan State early on because of academics and video. And those things were big to him. 
He's never, ever lost that drive that he has. When people talk about working like a GA, okay, I'll put Tom Izzo, myself included, on this. I'd put Tom Izzo up against anybody when it comes to the level of work that he does, the way he approaches it, recruiting, coaching, the whole thing, uh, it, with, with all that he's achieved. The other big thing about Tom is he never let a, uh, the sun go down on a problem. If there was an issue, it was going to get handled. Now, the rules were a little bit different. You didn't always have practice at, 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 at 5 a.m. anymore. You didn't bring people in for a meeting at 2 or 3 a.m., but Tom was going to get it handled. It was not The sun was not going to come up on a problem. Now, it, it, there might still be some residuals, but the bulk of that problem was going to be handled. And then the third thing, and I think this is what's made him so successful with so many people and why people have stayed with him. Our first meeting that we had as a complete staff when he was a head coach, everybody that was in there, equipment, secretaries, administrative assistants, coaches, GAs, you name it. He said, here's the deal. He said, if I win, you're all going to win. Everybody will be successful if I'm successful. But if I lose, none of you are going to be successful. We have to be connected at all times to making this work. I'll never forget. I'll never forget the chair I was in, who was in the room. You could have heard a pin drop. And man, if he hasn't lived up to that, I mean, it's just exactly the way it's been. So I could go on and on in this whole podcast about what makes him special. But those things are really what separate Tom Izzo. So coach, when you took over your first head coaching job at Marquette, you were quoted as saying, I had unbelievable respect for the tradition and the name. When I thought of Marquette, I thought of a true basketball school. And to me, that had a lot to do with taking the job. You mentioned legendary coach Al McGuire, and he had a lot to do with Marquette being recognized as a true basketball school. Coach McGuire was there for 13 years at Marquette. In his final season, his team wins that national championship over uh, Dean Smith and, and North Carolina Tar Heels. You mentioned it earlier in one of your previous uh, answers, but, but talk to us about some of the, the opportunities you had and those interactions uh, prior to his passing in sure. 2001. Well, I got a year and a half with him, and it would be the equivalent of getting, you, you name it, doctorate, PhD, the whole thing in a whirlwind deal. Uh, because I took, once he made it available for me, to become his friend and to talk to him and listen to him, I took advantage of it every way. And and then he and he got sick, which was really hard to watch him go through because we were building a friendship. But I'll never forget the first time I, I saw him. It was in the old gym. He had come over to practice uh, our, our workouts. He had a jean jacket on. He had jeans on. I'm not sure that I'm not sure the shampoo would hit that hair in a couple of days, right? But he walked by me, and then I think he realized who I was, and he came back and he said hello. And he said, if you ever want to get together, get a hold of me, right? Like, and, and which was really cool. So there came a day, and the first day we were able to gather, I met him out at his office in Oconomowoc, Pewaukee, Oconomowoc, one of those towns outside of Milwaukee. And I sat in there with him, and he was he was making a a stock he was making a stock right, and it's like the numbers he was throwing around on shares, like a whoa, I'm in a different place here now, right? This guy's amazing. We spent probably five hours that day, and what really what I walked away from was this: he figured out that I was totally serious about learning from him. I didn't want anything other than learning from him. I had no ulterior motive. I just wanted to get better. And I think he realized that. And what he did for me, among all the other things they did, we went to some antique uh, stores. We went to some farmhouses that were selling antiques. We went to a Friday fish fry. We went and sat on the dock of a lake of somebody that he knew wasn't home. I mean, we just had a great time, right? Well, what he did, one of the final things he said that day is he said, you don't have to live up to anything I did. Everything was different. The Bucks weren't the Bucks, and there was no Big East when I was coaching. He said, you be yourself. 
He said, don't worry about me. You be yourself. And it was like, when you hear somebody say that to you, and now you know, like they're already investing in you. It's an unbelievable feeling. But I learned so many things from him. And I never took notes when I was around him, but I always took notes when I left. And at the end of the day, I don't even need to refer to those notes. I remember so many things that I learned from him. The last day I was ever with him, he told me because he was in a hospice and this was on a Monday and he passed away on a Friday morning. I think it was a Friday morning. He said that always surround yourself with professionals because he was really, really happy. He knew he was going to pass, but he was really happy with his doctors and his nurses. Like he knew he was in great care. And he said, it'll cost more, but it'll always be worth it. And he said, you got to promise me you're going to take vacations. He said, don't sit in that office every day of the year. You're going to have to get away with your family, especially as they get older, because we had a very young family at that point. And he said, remember, he said, you don't have to do anything that I did. You just be you. And it was awesome. Right. And I told him it was an absolute honor and a privilege to know him. And I didn't know that that was the last time I was going to see him. I knew we were getting close, but that was the last time I saw him. And it was also the only time I've ever been late for practice in my life. Because when I left there, I got about five minutes down the road and I pulled over. I was bawling my eyes out because I, I was so sad, right? Like it was, I felt so good that I had this guy that was a legend to me and so many others that had invested in me. And you almost knew like, now I don't get to do it anymore. But I wouldn't trade that year and a half with him. I wouldn't trade. We went to an event day after Christmas. It was almost like he was having a goodbye party for his friends. Like he knew he was going to pass. And my wife and I are going home and, and after it's over and I'll never forget it. I said, it's unbelievable that a man that everybody came to cheer up, cheered everybody up. And he's the one that's sick. Everybody walked out of there feeling better because they got a chance to spend time around Al McGuire. And I could talk about him for a day because, but when you, when you're surrounded by people that you highly respect and they invest in you, and that's for every coach out there, when you find a mentor, somebody that will invest in you, you cannot do enough to thank those people. And the best way you thank them is by continuing to respect what they tell you and appreciate what they tell you and know that you are absolutely getting something that's special. So, Coach, you know, sometimes opportunities come along that no matter how bad the situation might be, you just can't say no. In the spring of 2008, the University of Indiana came calling, and shortly thereafter, you were hired as the head men's basketball coach at Indiana. Take us through that process. What led to the decision for you to leave Marquette, especially after the success you had? You know, obviously, everyone's talked about that Final Four run, and that was great, but, you know, you were just coming off three straight 20 win seasons when you accepted that job, and, and you had just had a spot in the NCAA tournament as well. So, what led to the decision to leave Marquette and take the job at Indiana? Well, I think for me, there have been other opportunities at other schools. And I'd never had an agent that would talk. But in, in the time before Indiana, the only school that I'd ever talked to, uh, and it was all over the phone. I was sitting in the car at, at the, the old uh, or at, at Miller Park in Milwaukee after being at a baseball game. So I, it wasn't in person. But I was on the phone, and that was Kansas when, when Roy Williams left, when Bill Self got the job. And because Roy, we had played in the Final Four, and Roy was – really had become a good friend and, and I think was pushing me uh, to a degree. Now, obviously it worked out great for Bill Self and for Kansas with what he's done. But I think when you learn not to look and you're, and you're not pursuing is when it's best, right? So all of a sudden, Indiana, 
came about uh, on a Sunday night late. I got a call from the search room like 10.30, 10.45 at night from Eddie Fogler. And I think they probably had a couple people that they were looking at that had turned it down. I wasn't quite sure of the names. Learned later on, but it wasn't what was important. So I thought about it the next day and I met with them. And I think ultimately I made that decision with my heart as a kid that that was in seventh grade watching Indiana play Michigan was the, the candy stripes. It was the jerseys, the red and white. It was all that stuff. It was the Bob Knight. It was going to the Bob Knight one man clinics or going uh, to the weekend clinic where you could see practice. And, and it was all that. And I didn't take it with my head. Because if I took it with my head, I'd have done a much better job of asking questions. I'd have done a much better job of getting to the root of what some of the potential issues were going to be. But I took it with my heart. And uh, the first three years were really, really hard. I, we gave up probably a team. That that team ended up having, at Marquette, had four guys that scored 1,600 points or more uh, on that team when it was said and done. So I gave up a great program, gave up some wonderful people to go to Indiana. And there were certainly many days that I questioned that. In fact, the Monday after I took it on a Tuesday, one of the people at Marquette that was in the decision-making realm said, let's just treat this as a bad April Fool's joke and why don't you come back? And uh, we were were already going through it at that point. And I thought about it for about 20 minutes, talked to my wife and said, no, we can't do this. And we lived it out, right? Now, those first three years were incredibly hard, but I wouldn't trade everything that we went through for what we were able to accomplish there for anything. And players that that we got to coach, the coaches that I worked with, the fans were incredible. Uh, There's certainly things that I'd like do-overs on. There isn't any job, right? And my last three years there were a different kind of hard versus the first three years, but they were very hard. And, and it wasn't the fan base. It was more what you deal with inside, in-house, administratively, and things like that. But I wouldn't trade that because all those lessons that I learned from Tom Izzo, those lessons that I learned from Ralph Willard uh, at Western Kentucky and at Pittsburgh, uh, what I learned from Denny Kuyper, Ted McIntyre, Ralph Pym, when I was coaching with them coming out of, uh, or while I was in college, all those things came back to help me in a great way. And what you learn is you better love coaching, okay, a heck of a lot more then problems get you down. Because if you don't love coaching and you're dealing with problems, it's really, really easy to give in. But if you love coaching so much, and if you love making players better, and you love that part of it more than all the problems, you'll survive. And that's exactly what it was for me. Yeah, there's there's that saying that, that goes like this, that in any other state, it's just basketball, but this is Indiana. And you talked about when you face adversity, you better love what you do and you better love coaching. That first year at Indiana, you go six and 25, one and 17 in the Big Ten. Um, I'm sure none of your opponents felt very sorry for you, though, because you lost Eric Gordon to the NBA, DJ White's graduation. On top of that, you had two players transfer, three players that were dismissed from the team. Your first few weeks in the job, uh, you're looking at a roster of two walk-on players who had a combined 36 points during their basketball careers at Indiana University. <laughs> How do you go about trying to rebuild, like you talked about, you know, the, the, the pinstripes, Coach Knight, this this historic program, and how difficult was it to block out all of the outside noise that comes with being a part of a program like Indiana? I think that's where my heart came in because I was such a fan of Indiana basketball. And it meant so much to me growing up in Michigan because, again, I, like when I was 10, our teacher said, yeah, the Michigan Wolverines play tonight. Everybody watch that game. We're going to talk about it tomorrow. Well, I went home and watched the game, but like 
I was into Indiana, right? Like Central Michigan was all I knew at that point. I'd go to the games all the time. My first two memories of national basketball really were Indiana then the following year in 77 with Marquette. And like now I was coaching at those two places that I grew up on outside of Central Michigan saying like, this is unbelievable. Like these are my dreams, right? And, and when you're growing up, you're not thinking about coaching at those places. But I think the love I had for Indiana I think the way I viewed the former players, I think the way I viewed the tradition, the respect I had for Bob Knight, because we've had a friendship. Bob Knight and I had a friendship before I took the job. The friendship didn't last once I took the job, unfortunately, but I I certainly wanted it to, but it just didn't. But we never stopped revering him. We never stopped. And I don't mean just respect. I mean, absolute reverence to what he did at Indiana. And whether it's the pictures on the wall, whether it was the pregame videos, you name it. There was no one who was ever going to walk in there and say, we were not showing incredible reverence to Bob Knight and what he did. And I think those are the kind of things. But there were a couple of things with recruiting. We said, we're not going to recruit to get in the hunt. We've got to recruit to win the league. And if that means that we don't get some guys, then we don't get some guys. But we can't settle because we really had to. I mean, we were still walk, trying out walk-ons in February of that year. I mean, literally, I mean, at one point in time, we had, I think, nine or 10 scholarship players. We had seven walk-ons, and it just is the way it is. And we had Eric Arnett, who's from Columbus, Ohio, was on the baseball team. He walked on. He wasn't able to play in games with the way they counted baseball versus basketball counters, but he practiced with us every day. We had more Major League Baseball teams come in to watch him practice basketball with us than we had NBA teams. And Eric ended up having a great junior year and going in the first round to the Milwaukee Brewers. And it's like, it was just everything you could have imagined that was crazy, we lived through. But the bottom line is we tried to recruit the right way. You learn that you've got to surround yourself with energy. You got to surround yourself with smart people, but you got to surround yourself with people that can pick you up when you're down. And there is no question that I learned a valuable coaching lesson there is that you got to have people that can motivate the motivator because there are going to be plenty of days that you don't have that in you or you hit wit's end. I mean, there's never been a season in my life where more games at the end, you you put so much into it. And after I'm done talking to the team, I'm in tears, right? Because you're just so spent from trying to win. But the other thing that that taught me is, I mean, we lose to Illinois one day and we're down 20 some. We come out with a different defense. We cut that thing to three or four. We end up losing the game. But our fans were so emotional and so wrapped up in trying to help us win that game. When that game was over, I was an emotional wreck because I felt like we had let them down. We were so close. And that's the love and beauty of coaching there. Because when those fans are with you, man, they are with you. And even when they're not with you, you you, you see some of the passion. That, that, that was never what bothered me. It was when you're not surrounded by people administratively that are doing everything they can do to help you is where the problems come. But to me, it was awesome to be there. And the coaching part of it for me was you got to give your team belief, a chance and a plan to win every game when you are the only one and your staff are the only people that think you have any chance to do it. Because if you give those players any belief whatsoever that they're not going to win, they can let go of that rope so quick. Right. And we fortunately had a bunch of guys that wanted to compete. They wanted to do it right. As a coaching staff, we weren't going to let go of the rope. We were going to come in with a plan every day to let that happen. And the players were the same way. And we didn't win the games. But man, we gave we, we, we came in with a plan like we could believe. And it really taught me there's a lot of different ways to win a basketball game. You got to be willing to try it. Yeah, coach. So as you alluded to earlier, you know, the first three years, pretty rough. 
But then in 2011-2012, you had a breakthrough season where your team won 27 games, made it to the Sweet 16 of the NCAA tournament. You became the first coach in Indiana history to beat three teams ranked in the top five in the same season as you knocked off Kentucky, Ohio State, and Michigan State. The next year, even better. Won the Big Ten title, spent 10 weeks atop the AP poll, and all but two weeks ranked uh, inside the top five. And once again, led the Hoosiers to the NCAA Sweet 16. At that point, many would say rebuild complete. Hoosier hysteria was back in full swing. All was right again in the college basketball landscape with Indiana once again being one of the premier basketball programs in the nation. You know, getting to the top requires a lot. Staying at the top requires even more. There's an old saying uh, that an assistant coach of mine used to say, good enough never is, as we strive to motivate our teams to be better and not just good enough. Mm -hmm. What was your message to your team heading into that 2013 offseason? And what were the things you were doing to try to keep them hungry? Yeah, well, the problem, and I learned this early on uh, because of the way we you, you alluded to it. I mean, we had one scholarship player who had been a walk-on for his first three years in Kyle Tabor, and we had one walk-on in Brent Finkelmeyer. That's all we had coming back. So, like, when we had to recruit, we, it, we knew at some point in time the rebuild was going to be like, we're going to have to do this all over again. Now, when you get Cody Zeller and he leaves after two years, when you get Vector Aladipo, because I've always felt recruiting Vic, even when we were, we were his only high major Division One offer, like, I always felt he was going to be a pro. But I didn't quite see him being the second pick in the draft his junior year, right? I didn't see that. But we knew because we the way we'd signed Christian Watford, Jordan Halls, those type of guys, we were going to hit a rebuild again. And it just so happened after that year, which was tough, because we knew it was coming. But I think once you win and the fans had been through all the stuff that they'd been through with helping us get back up, they wanted to just keep on going. Well, in this day and age with the portal and the NIL and all that kind of things, yeah, you can do that. But then we couldn't. And so we had three freshmen in the starting lineup and another freshman that was coming off the bench. And we had Yogi Farrell back and Will Sheehy back. And it was tough. We ended up having a lottery pick and Noah Vonley. But we had so many young guys that had to adjust to what we were doing. And so, and, and we had, a, frankly, a couple guys on that team that weren't as hungry as they needed to be. And, and they weren't as locked into basketball the next couple of years. But we had to work through that. You know, we took a recruiting class that was highly ranked and some guys made it and some guys didn't. But what we were able to do, I think, is continue to stay the course with getting better, build it up. Uh, Noah went to the pros after one year, but Troy Williams was still there. You know, Yogi Ferrell kept getting better. You know, we just we had to keep going. We had to keep adding, but we had to make sure that the guys we had in there were getting better. And I think that's what happened. And when we were able to sign Nick Zeisloff in the 2014-15 season, and then the next year, we were able to get Max Biefeldt as a grad transfer, but also signed Thomas Bryant, OG Adenobi, and Juwan Morgan. All three of those guys played in the NBA, and, and two are still are. Those are the things that put us over. But without Yogi Ferrell improving the way that he did, if those things don't happen, then maybe we don't hit those marks. And I think, again, no, especially in this day and age of the portal and 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 guys transferring, even in high school, with so many so many ways. And I'm just reading a story of I mean, like four or five kids are leaving their high schools in New York to go to different things over just the last couple of days. If you don't treat every player on your team with the utmost vision of how are you going to get them better every day, 
not only are you cheating them, but you're cheating yourself. I don't know if you can look ahead and say, well, I may not have him. I may not have her. I don't think you can do that in this day and age. I think you got to put so much into making your players better more than ever. Like I didn't have one and done until we got to Indiana, but I know coaching a one and done that, that, that how important that was to speed the process up mentally. Like that, that doesn't mean they're going to make more shots. It doesn't mean that they're going to be better right away, but you got to speed the process up for them. And I think you, you give them what they can handle, but you also find out they can handle more than, than they think. And I think that's really, really important in how you coach. And so guys like Yogi Ferrell, who started on a, on a Big Ten championship team, then he led a Big Ten championship team in the 16-17 uh, or 15-16 year. Uh, and, and those kind of things were really, really important to us building it up. So I'm proud of what we did with that. We just ran into some problems the last year where we didn't have any seniors after Colin Hartman got hurt. Jawan Morgan injured his ankle and was able to play through it, but he was never able to really practice through it from the end of January on. And we had a guy that was projected to be in the lottery in OG Ananobi that tore his ACL and missed his last 18 game. And it was really hard for us. But bottom line is we were able to recover from that great couple of years that culminated in 2013, have one year dip, get the team back to the NCAA tournament, and then win a Big Ten and get to the Sweet 16. So, Coach, let, let's talk about, you know, that, that last season in Indiana. You alluded to it um, a little bit already. You know, Tony Dungy... Um, I, I read a quote in a book that he wrote a long time ago. It says, you can't always control your circumstances. What you can control is your attitude, your approach, and your response to those circumstances. And on March 16, 2017, you were let go as the head coach at Indiana University. And in one of your interviews uh, following your dismissal, you vowed to not be bitter, but instead get better uh, and you stated that you have to get over the feelings of failure and betrayal as quickly as possible in order to move on. And coach, that's not an easy thing to do uh, for anybody, especially when you've invested so much into something. How are you able to stay so positive in, in what many view as such a difficult situation? Well, you don't you don't get rid of those those feelings. I mean, and that's the stuff that you're praying for constantly to God to help you with that, and then to pray for those people. And I still do to this day. Like, I know I know what hurt me there, right? I, I know those types of things. When you know something or you know the people that are not trying to help you or against you in that situation, okay, you don't, it is what it is, right? Like, now you make a decision. Am I going to let this decision, those people control my spirit, put doubts in me, right, and put me in a place where I'm going to question whether I can do this? And the answer was no, no, and no. I was not going to let that happen. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't have bad days. That doesn't mean that it doesn't come up. I'd be lying to say it doesn't come up right now mentally. It does. But when you truly, um, when your faith in God is one where you are not going to let decisions of other people affect how you view your relationship with God, how you view your faith, or how you view forgiveness and how you view prayer for people and wanting people to do well. And I think I learned this in coaching, especially at Indiana, because the coaching business, I love coaching. Okay. But, but just like you guys, the coaching business can be rough and you're dealing with people. I mean, when you end up beating somebody that you know is cheating, right, man, it's like winning the game twice, right? Like it's just, it's a different feeling. It is what it is. And so what I learned is 
I'm not going to judge everybody based on what I see them as professionally or what I view them as personally. I'm not going to judge. All right. My bottom line is everybody, Judd Heathcote had a great line a long time ago that I really started to view in coaching. And it doesn't mean that you accept things or like things. It doesn't mean that you, when the playing field's not level, when it comes to how you're getting players or those type of things that you're going to like it. But he said, I'll never forget it. He, 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 there was a breakfast during winter break. I was a GA. Coaches are sitting there. Jim Boylan's there. Tom's there. And I think he and Tom got into a conversation about the media. And he said something I never forgot. He says, remember, he said, everybody that you deal with in the media, they have a boss and they have a family. And I thought that was a that was a heck of a thing. And I never forgot that. And I think no matter how mad you get in coaching, no matter how disappointed, you can't let discouragement kick in. And you can't get so mad at somebody and forget the fact that, 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 that God wants every one of us to have an opportunity to get to heaven. Okay, we all have different circumstances and consequences and things that happen. We could talk about that forever. But God didn't make anybody to not get to heaven. God didn't make anybody to be a failure. Okay. He didn't do that. So people have families. All right. People have people that they're responsible to. Would you like certain things to be different? Sure. I'm sure people would like me to be different, but the bottom line is you got to continue to pray for those people because that's the only thing that can help you stay even keeled when you're going through hardships like that mentally. And and because it's hard on your family, but you've also got to give that example to your family. Because if we're going to be the spiritual leaders of our home, we can't just be the spiritual leader when things are rolling well. We got to be the spiritual leader when things are at their bleakest, because that's when people are looking at us the most. Coach, I love that. That's a great answer. You know, I mean, we're, we're talking about coaching at the high school level. You're coaching at one Division One. I, I mean, as as cutthroat as it gets, and our egos and our pride can get involved, but sometimes it's really hard to step back and see the bigger picture. It's hard. But we're all, it's seeing it's all relevant, right? Like, no matter where I coach, no matter where Eric Spolster coaches, no matter where you guys coach, you know, this weekend we're going to the Hall of Fame. Greg Popovich is going in and uh, all these different coaches. We're all coaches. Everybody's a leader, right? And and what happens too many times, and I know there's been days that, that I should have been better with another coach or maybe I had something on my mind and it looked like I was blowing somebody off and I was never meant to do that. We're all created equal, right? We just all have different situations. And in coaching – you have to feel for it because I, I say this a lot because I try to live it. What you love and your passion that you have for coaching and your passion that you have for making players better or whatever you're coaching and leading for, all the other nonsense, we all have it. You two have it. I have it. And I don't have a team, right? There's always things that you've got to deal with that are incredibly hard. And they're not going to go away, but they're going to overwhelm you, eat you up, chew you up, whatever adjective, whatever phrase you want to use if your love of coaching and improving people isn't at the top of the umbrella. And I just refuse to let that happen to me. You know, and I think that's faith, but I also think that's, I love it, man. I love the game. I love coaching. I love watching people get better. And and it's not just, I mean, we've, we've crossed the billion dollar mark now uh, with Anthony Edwards' new deal on guys with, with what they've either earned or what they're contracted to make in that time. And I love those guys, but I also love those guys that scored Two points a game, three points a game, four points a game that have gone through things in their life, and I'm still in contact with them like I am an NBA player. That's the bottom line. It maybe not it maybe doesn't get as much of attention, all right? It maybe the media doesn't want to do a story about it, but at the same time, those are relationships that you have, and it's all relevant no matter where we coach. Absolutely. Can't put a price tag on those relationships. Let's talk about after uh, the, the run at Indiana. You take a year off, you head south. 
SEC country, or you, you take over a Georgia basketball team, it's kind of looking to find itself, looking for an identity, looking for someone to to lead their program. Um, you know, year one, you guys win 11 games. Year two, you win 16 games, and things kind of take a turn, start to go backwards. Um, talk to us about some of the difficult situations you face, where, where, like you mentioned, you face those difficult situations. How much do you love it? Is it going to get you through? You know, those final two years at Georgia, how you handle those, and and now you've had a little time to reflect on your tenure there. Were there things you wish you would have done differently? Oh, absolutely. And I, I think the thing that the, the turn was we beat Ole Miss in the conference tournament on a Wednesday night. We're going to play Florida the next day. And we're now at 16 and 16. So all of a sudden, okay, now we beat Florida. We're sitting in there in that NIT world. It's not the NCAA, okay? But now we're, we're starting to move up. Well, all of a sudden, COVID hits. We were one of the programs that COVID really hurt, right? I mean, they hurt everybody. But the bottom line is... We lost our ability to recruit. We lost Anthony Edwards. So there was no, we knew we were going to lose him. So there was no way to like really go out and find somebody to replace him. So, and then the portal hit and things of that nature, but I made enough mistakes. I think there's, there's two things I would, that I think about a lot that I think any coach at any level has got to put a lot of time into. Okay. Just because you want a job doesn't mean it's the right job. And one of the things that hurt me at Georgia, I got hired by a great, I thought a great person, Greg McGarity. Well, I also thought he was going to be there for more than two years. I thought he was going to be with me longer than that. That was kind of how they left our house, right? Like they, like we were going to go through this together. Well, he was ready. He retired right as COVID was, as we got back into football season. Like that's really hard because that job, we had a lot of work to do in there. We had a lot of work to do academically. We had a lot of work and it, it's every job is a lot of work. When you get hired by somebody, you got to know that at a very high percentage, you're going to go through that with them. And because you get a new athletic director comes in that didn't hire you, it's, it's hard, right? It's absolutely hard. And then it's like this. When you're coaching, the bottom line is like if we're on a tightrope, right, and we're walking that tightrope, your personal life of what's underneath you on that tightrope, you got to have your faith because you're not getting anything done without that. You got to have your family and friends that are there to support you, catch you. We got to have some focus or you're going to fall off the line. Well, a lot of times the professional part of that tightrope, if you don't have your administration right there underneath you, if you don't have the support of those people with you, okay, and if you don't have that level of support with the staff within you, that's a tough fall, right? So there's two different tightropes we're going on. It's not the same. It's it's a tightrope, but there's two different things. Your family can't necessarily help you in your profession a lot of times, right? So you got to know who you are surrounded with administratively, okay, especially with the decision makers, and you've got to do a great job on your staff. And I would say that I've learned so much. And some of the things that I did at Georgia, I got away from some of my rules on staffing. And I won't do that again. And it is what it is. Uh, at the same time, I made plenty of mistakes. I, I, I should have done things differently when I first walked in, recruiting-wise, you know, how we were organized, support staff-wise, things of that nature. Um, there's no question. There's no question. And you look at timing of things. And Nick Claxton got so good after one year that he was able to leave and be the first pick in the second round. Well, now next year, he's going to probably sign for anywhere from 25 to 30 million a year. And we were recruiting the whole time thinking we were going to have him with Anthony Edwards. Well, that would have been awesome, but it didn't work out that way. Right. So you make the adjustments. But the bottom line is the players are really obviously they're important. You can't win without them. But you better have the right staff and you better be surrounded by people that you know are there with you. 
You know they're there with you. You know there's somebody fighting for you at the table when you're not there. You know that they have a seat at the table. And I think those are the kind of things that you look at. And I'm using that as a general statement, but there's no question that was a part of it at Georgia. And I wish I would have done things differently. But I know this. In a year and a half, I've gained so much from that, but also so much from learning that I look forward to the next time of going back. But you can't just hire somebody because somebody recommended them or can, or because they've got this experience or that experience or they work for this person or that person. You got to be so careful. You got to be a private investigator. Okay. Basically in your recruiting and how you put your team together, you better be a private investigator and in how you put your staff together because they got to deal with you when you're the head coach. Like I said, my job every day, I was coming in there to make guys great. That didn't mean they were going to like it. Right. That didn't mean that they were going to like how we were doing it. But we've also had a ton of guys go off and be head coaches. You don't walk into that head coaching seat when it was easy every day. I know I sure didn't. The bottom line is, I think those are the biggest things that you can do. And then you got to really view. You can't put so much stock in your belief that you're going to make them better if you haven't seen some tangible proof that you can really do that. Because I'm only as good a lot of times in recruiting and develop a player based on my vision for them. And because you, your vision for the player has got to be the thing that overrides it when they don't feel like doing it or when they're having a bad day or you're having a bad day or you're on a three-game losing streak. You've got to have a vision for them that that, that pushes it. And I think the, the biggest mistake you can make is to think, well, I can do this, I can do that. Whatever you really want to accomplish as a coach with your team, you've got to build your team towards that. And that means no matter what you do, you better have a staff of skill development people. You better have a group of people that that can make that individual player better on the floor, man or woman. And you better have a staff that can deal with those players in a way that can make them better. Like I always said, I never wanted to be the assistant coach who everybody, they all came to my office. If they all came to my office between nine and five, that means between five and nine, I probably wasn't getting those phone calls, right? When things go wrong. And that's high school and college. It doesn't make a difference. You don't want to be where everybody just comes and congregates and they hang out and you're cool and you're this. You better be the person that they call when they got a problem or when they got to talk about something that's going on at home or where they're in some type of trouble that they need to get out of. And they better know that you're going to not only remind them of the problem, but you're going to come to them with a solution, whether they want to hear it or not. And I think that's where coaching's going. It's getting so hard to confront and demand because everybody's so worried about the parents and the administrations and they're going to leave the school or they're going to transfer. You better not get away from having expectations for somebody and how they improve and how they work with everybody else. And can they not only want success for themselves, but do they want success for their teammates? And you got to fight to get that constantly. Because if you do, you're going to win and they're going to be successful. But if you don't, all you really were was an enabler, all right, to somebody that gets to keep doing it exactly the way they've wanted it. And you know what? At the end of the day, they come back and they look at you and they wonder why they're not successful. And I don't want everybody ever doing that with me. Coach, that's fantastic. I'd like to transition a little bit. Uh, and, and I'm going to be honest, I, I listened to your podcast with Slapping Glasses. I'm sure a lot of people did. Their podcast is unbelievable. And there was a segment in there about special situations. And so we, we got to spend a little bit of time talking about special situations. Absolutely. Uh, I threw out the cliche textbook for this podcast now. This has been all about, I don't I do not do the cliche uh, stuff with what we're talking about. Because now, coaches aren't hearing enough truths. And 
I don't mean you guys. And this podcast is absolutely awesome. But coaches need to know we're all in this together in a lot of ways, even though we're not together, even though we have different jobs, different situations. But the bottom line is there's a lot of people and there's a lot of things that can distract us from what's most important. And we can't let it happen. We got to we got to fight it every day. So we're, we're going to go in a little segment here. We talk about special situations. The first question I have for you is how often are you practicing special situations and kind of how do you set them up? In practice, okay, the thing we were going to do more than anything else was we were going to shoot because the easiest thing to lose sight of is how many shots you're getting up in a practice and you think you're shooting because you're in a scrimmage or you think you're shooting. When you start charting in actual situational practice, scrimmaging, three on threes, four on fours, how many shots guys are actually getting, it can be very, very little. You've got to carve out that time to shoot. We were always going to put things in their head, right, with the time and score or three on oh, four on oh, five on oh, with a short time like how many passes we wanted to make like you should be able to make two passes in three seconds three passes in five seconds five passes in seven to eight seconds right on down the line and still get a good shot the ball's got to move so we're going to put those things in whether it's offensive breakdown situationally defensive breakdown we're going to put things into the scrimmage but I think situationally one of my favorite things is and I have numerous ones but my favorite thing that gets a lot of stuff done is you choose the time arbitrarily of what you want on the clock. So let's say we're going to go two minutes and 30 seconds and we're going to put 60 to 60. Okay. On the scoreboard, I'm going to determine, I always set up the situation. I took that. I took a lot of pride in doing that myself and I was going to set up and I'd let the other guys coach it obviously, but I was going to, I was going to set the situation up. So I'm going to set the foul situation up, the bonus situation, the timeout situation. up, And we would do that and say, okay, there's two minutes and 30 seconds, 60, 60, the clock starts at 68, or the clock starts at 67. And then you play from there. So they're playing live, and all of a sudden when that score hits, you don't know what it's going to be. It could be 67, 66, could be 67, 60. Now you've got to play it out. And now there's a certain amount of timeouts, and any time I went over four minutes, I'd include a TV timeout in it. But that, to me, we could spring a lot of things off of that and get a lot of very organic, natural situations from that action. And to me, another one would be, we were going to play a six possession game. And uh, Adam, you're, you're blue. You're going to start with the ball. You're going to have six seconds on an underneath out of bounds. And Walt, you're on defense and we're going to go six possessions. Okay. So at the end of those six possessions, we're going to have a score. If it's six to five, uh, Adam's blue team. Okay. Then they won the possession. If it's six to six, the team that finished that possession. Okay. With the ball, they're going to go to the line and shoot a one-on-one. If you make them both, you're up two. We go down on the other end. The team hits a three. It's over. The team misses. It's over. The team hits two. Boom, we keep playing. So there's a winner. Then we're going to turn it around. The exact same situation Walt's going to get. He's going to have six seconds underneath, baseline out of bounds. And we're going to play those six possession games because the average possession length is basically 6.2 possessions. Okay, when you when you really look at it, High school, college, MBA, it's 6.2 possessions. It might be a little, slightly higher in, in, in high school, but it's right in that realm, okay, of that 6.2. So we're going to break it down that way, and we're going to coach it out. I think you get a lot of organic situations that way, but you've got to make sure that you're having specific situations sprinkled in. And I was going to make sure we spent, I would say, 10 minutes on a set situation, at least three times a week, maybe four. So, Coach, talk about the importance of scouting 
end of game situations. How much emphasis did you put on that when preparing for an opponent? Uh, tremendous. I, I think one of the best tapes you can make, I learned this from Jeff Van Gundy years ago. It, as an assistant, I learned this, is you take everybody's games that were plus six or minus six. Okay. Now you got to look at the score sheet because the game might've been, uh, maybe somebody had to foul a bunch the last 30 seconds. So like if it was a really close game in those last four minutes, I've done it with five minutes. I've done it with four minutes. And then I also had a tape of two minutes, right? So anything that was even closer, okay. A two minute tape in the conference where you had more of a realm of it. If it was a, a two minute tape on anything, four points or less, But the four or five minute tape, depending on what you want to do, up six points or less. And you really start to study what teams are doing. You get a really good idea on what they're going to. And then I think you have to really study a couple of things inside of that. you got to study, is it plays or players at the end of the game? Are there certain plays that they really like or are there players that they're definitely going to no matter what? So you've got to know that difference. You've got to know their situation. When are they going for three? Like me, we weren't going for, we were going to stretch the game as long as we could. But I see more and more right now, teams are going for three early. Sometimes I'm like, what are you doing? But that's up to the coach, right? You've got to know when are they going to start going for three? Because you've got to be able to play your foul game based on that. And you've got to be able to play the timing game based on that. And then I think this, you've got to look, is the same person, not the star, right? Because you're going to figure out who the star is. Is the same person that they've got to have to help them be successful on the offensive end and on the defensive end, what are they like at the end of games? Okay, are they the same player? And if somebody's a great help defender or somebody's a great talker, somebody's great at moving without the ball, somebody's great at passing out of the post, but they're not as good at scoring in the post, who is the player that makes it easier for everybody else? And you got to make sure that no matter what, at the end of the game, you not only know who's shooting the ball, but who is creating and making the game easier for somebody else? And those are the biggest things to me by far in the scouting game, at the end of games. So, Coach, I've heard you talk about how you like to leave a game with a timeout always in hand. Why is that? Uh, talk to us a little bit about your your timeout philosophy. Well, this goes back. I've always believed that. But we're, we're playing Michigan for the Big Ten Championship in 2013. We're down five with 50-some-odd seconds to go. And we got three timeouts left. Now, the night before, now we had lost at home. Uh, earlier that week to Ohio State on what the night that would have clinched the championship for us. So we go to Michigan. We win. We win it outright. We lose. There's probably a five-way tie. And we had done all this situational work of what we wanted to do at the end of the game because we knew if it came down to the end, uh, John Beeline was one of those guys. He didn't put guys late in the game on the foul line, right? He got his guys back. So we didn't know it was going to work out like this, but we practiced these different situations. Well, long story short, we're down five and we come back. We score, we foul them at the right times, nobody else on the line, they miss, we get the rebounds and, and come down on the other end and score. And I never had to use the timeouts. They make one of those free throws, they make two of those free throws, all of a sudden we're using timeouts. Now, I don't recommend going home with three timeouts, but that's one of the greatest feelings I ever had is that we were able to execute at the end of the game, inside of that game, win the game by one, and we didn't have to use those timeouts. I think you it's like preparing for the rainy day, right? Why you hide the money under your mattress when you're a kid? Because you never know when you're going to need it, right? The bottom line is, if I go home with a timeout, I feel a lot better. And I know no matter what happened, I'm going to feel okay than I would if I burned a timeout early and I didn't have a timeout to win a game at the end. 
It's the same thing with getting a technical. You know, you get that technical, you got to be so careful and so smart because, man, people, they can be mad at you for not being on the refs too much or whatever it is. You go home and you know that you had a hand, whether it was the calling of the timeout or you got that technical or you made a mistake, you're not sleeping that night. Now, everybody else is going to bed, okay? But you're not. You may be laying there, but you're not falling asleep. And sleep was hard enough for me that I didn't want to be going there second guessing the heck out of myself on one of those decisions. But I think you give your team confidence that they can keep winning the game. If you can keep that timeout to the ability for that rainy day that you have one, just in case you need it at the end. And I haven't always had that work out, obviously. But to me, I feel a lot better when we have it because I feel good about what we're going to be able to do at the end of games. All right, Coach, we're going to go rapid fire here. I'm going to throw a few situations at you. want to know what's Coach Crean doing in each situation and why. Up three, seven seconds left, opponent's ball. Uh, Playing it out. If you turn the dribbler, okay, you're taking two seconds off the clock. The bottom line is we're going to do everything we can do not to give a straight line dribble. We'll switch anything that comes in contact, uh, and we're going to try to turn that dribble as much as we can in the backcourt, pick it up. We don't want to get beat over the top. We're going to play it out. Three seconds left. Opponent has to go the length of the court. Are you putting someone over the ball or are you playing five on four? No, absolutely. Going after the ball, we're not waving our arms where the the passer can get a feel on it. Uh, We're going to do everything we can do to put length on the ball, all right, to, to try to do everything we can do to put just a little bit more air on the pass. And if they panic that they've got to throw something towards the sideline corner area. But we want to try to put as much air on the ball so we can get inside of it and bat it away or catch it. What's the most successful late-game offensive alignment for a Tom Crean coach team? I think we want to get into – we want to get something that creates it on the side, all right, to get it moving, get it thrown back to the top, and with about eight seconds to go, uh, somewhere in the eight, seven-second area, make sure we're coming down the middle of the floor – Uh, The corners are there. We're going to either have some type of roll and replace or we're going to roll the big and lift a guy to the high shake. But I want three outlets on that pass, one roller, but I want as much room as we can get to get to the basket for the layup or for the kick out three, depending on what the scores and get fouled. Obviously, you want to put yourself in a position where it's man on man. The referee has to make a decision on, on that foul. And the only other thing, if I have a really good post-up player that that I know is really good at drawing fouls, I'm going to run some type of thing on the side, get into some misdirection, get a cross screen to have uh, the ball on the block area. Okay, second block area where there's somebody in the weak side uh, baseline, where where there's some action on the ball, and where there's somebody in the slot that can knock down a three or make a cut if we need it. Let's talk about... Some of the players you've met, you've mentioned a lot of um, top tier talent. Some guys have gone on to play in the NBA. Um, you know, you look at Dwayne Wade, Wesley Matthews, Marquette. You mentioned yeah. Cody Zeller, Victor Oladipo, Indiana, Anthony Edwards, Nick Claxton, Georgia. Talk about the common threads of the best that you have observed and had the opportunity to coach in your 22 years. Yeah, this is this is good because this is. This is what's so important for people to understand. I think we've had, uh, I don't know if it's 17. I don't know the exact, I think it's 17. 17 players play in the NBA. I would say all but two of them weren't gym rats in college. That doesn't mean they came in as gym rats. 
Victor Oladipo, OG Ananobi, Noah Vonley, those guys came in as gym rats. Dwayne Wade certainly became one. Thomas Bryant became one. I mean, there's Nick Claxton became one even in the one year. Anthony Edwards came in as an absolute gym rat. I mean, when I mean like their commitment is they're going to shoot and do above and beyond whether you're doing individuals and practice, they were still coming in. Okay, when it means, and I've had plenty of other guys that were like that, Jordan Halls, Will Sheehy, people like that, but like the guys that made the NBA, the two that didn't still made it. But the bottom line is, if you don't have that work ethic going in, you better be incredibly talented because the odds of you getting into an environment in the NBA that are going to lead you to the gym other than what is required of you is slim. It, 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 there's that, that there's a separate, everybody thinks player development is equal in the NBA. It's not even close. I mean, it's not even, I mean, there are some programs that are really, really about player, individual player development. Everybody's about their system. Everybody's about their X's and O's. Everybody's about their offense and defense. Everybody is about making shots or stopping shots. Not everybody's about improving weaknesses. Not everybody's about improving your your left hand or improving your dribble or improving your jump hook. They're not all about that. A lot of times, the higher you go up, and this happens in college, the more people are going to play to your strengths. Well, your strengths are going to hit a ceiling. Your strengths are absolutely going to hit a ceiling. And to me, if you don't have that work ethic going in and you start to get paid and you start to have all the distractions that come, it's really hard to build it. What we've been fortunate to have is guys that had the work ethic, went in with the work ethic, and it got even better. And then near the end of their career, like Dwayne Wade's work ethic at the end of his career was unbelievable. And I tell people all the time, like, I don't know if he ever practiced with the Miami Heat where he didn't have knee pads on. Like, where it was a walkthrough, a practice, they were wearing those black knee pads. But Dwayne Wade had a personal trainer, but he was also going to work on basketball. And I think what happens is this. Guys start thinking, and girls, they start thinking the personal trainer is going to get it done for them. Well, what happens too many times is you start predetermining what you're going to do. You've got to have a semblance of making yourself better skill-wise, but you've also got to have the semblance of decision-making. And there is, I'm not anti-trainer at all. And I know there's people in coaching that are, I'm not anti-trainer at all. What I am is anti-only trainer. That's what I'm anti. You've got to be with your coaches. You've got to be with your trainer. You've got to have a great blend of individual work with your teamwork. And at the end of the day, if your individual skills get better and your weaknesses get better, your confidence is going to get better. And if your confidence gets better, your game is going to get better. Your game is going to make your team better. Everybody's more confident. And to me, I think the common thread was the work ethic. Another big common thread is, is empathy. People ask me all the time, like compared Dwayne Wade to Victor Oladipo or, you know, what's Anthony Edwards like? Well, Anthony Edwards was the number one player in the country. Dwayne Wade had three scholarship offers to the last three weeks of his recruiting, right? Like it's completely different. Anthony Edwards was number one forever. Dwayne Wade made one top 100 in high school. He didn't have it. But what they had outside of that work ethic is an unbelievable empathy for people. And they really, really cared about their teammates. I would say when I look at the common threads, the teammate part, the empathy, the work ethic, the majority of the guys that I've had, whether it's Anthony Edwards, who's been number one forever, Dwayne Wade, Victor Oladipo, OG Ananobi, you name it, they had a chip on their shoulder. It might have been invisible, right? It may not have been something people could see, but there was something there that drove them that was going to go far beyond anything that I could do once we made them realize what that chip was all about. And it doesn't matter who they are. You have a responsibility as a coach to drive 
people to their highest level of performance out of their potential. And that, uh, that has nothing to do with getting 25 points a game. It has everything to do with getting the most out of your ability and not accepting weakness, wanting your teammates to be successful, and having a competitiveness and a will that no matter what you're doing at the end of the game, no matter what you did in the first 30 minutes, 38 minutes of the game, 46 minutes in the NBA, those last two minutes, your competitiveness and your will is going to give your team a chance to win. Coach, I love that. And we all you know, have dealt with coaching that star player who maybe the, maybe the ego could be inflated a little bit more. And, you know, obviously at the level you've coached, the stakes are even higher. Um, and I'm sure it's not always easy to manage those players, especially with some of the outside noise that they can hear. Sure. How do you help a, an athlete like that block out that outside noise to ultimately get, you know, you talked about it earlier. It's the fast track. You know, this is the vision I have for you to maximize where we think you can go. How do you help them block out some of that outside noise that might not always be the best influence? Well, I think the first thing you do is you address it, right? You can't block it out because you can, I would tell people, our our teams all the time and the coaches, when they come in here, it's got to be the truth, all right? Now, you don't have to be nasty or mean. I'm not talking about that. It's got to be the truth. Now, sometimes getting the truth across to people, you got to fight them. And I don't mean physically fight them, but you've got to fight to get them to understand it. Well, you can't just come in that way. You've got to talk them through it. You've got to make them understand it's seeing their video. It's seeing somebody else's video. It's watching other players. It's all these different things. But at the end of the day, there is nothing more important, okay, than that player that's going through those things, than your truth and your vision for them and what you're willing to push them to do to be greater than any distraction to be greater than any uh, ease they want to have. And that doesn't mean that every day is a grueling, hard-nosed practice. I don't mean that at all. But you have to attack the issues when you see them. And if you don't know the player, and if that player doesn't know that you're invested in them, and if that player thinks that you're only looking at it, I learned this, you know, after Dwayne Wade. And and I really learned it during. Like, I would always say to guys, hey, I'm making money, right? I got a contract. I don't need your money. I want you to make money. I don't want you to stay or leave just so that I can make money. I want you to have real money. I want you to have a second contract. Our goal was the second contract. We've also had numerous guys like Wes, Yogi Farrell, Troy Williams, Jawan Morgan. Those guys made it as undrafted guys. But I wanted guys to get a second contract because the first contract is life altering money. The second contract is life changing money for you and for your family. The, the, the money you make, it's going to, you know, NIL changes it a little bit, but it's going to alter your life. It's going to change your life. But the rest of it is going to change it forever. And that's what you've got to be locked down with players. So you just tell them the truth and you don't give up and you don't give in when they don't want to hear it. And you find different ways to get it across. But I'll tell you this, as a head coach, if I'm pushing player development and I'm just leaving it to the GAs or I'm just leaving it to the assistant coaches and those guys only see me at practice, I'm the fraud. And I wanted our coaches out there, unless they were recruiting, I wanted them out there at all times for the individual workouts. Well, I wasn't missing those. And I think if you're truly serious about making somebody better, you've got to do it. It's not about walking out there with your with your shoes untied and your hat on backwards, drinking your coffee, watching somebody sweat with the players. No, get, get in there and do it with them. Get in there and be a part of it. Let them feel your energy. I mean, you don't have to be the passer. You don't have to be the guy hitting them with a pad. But, man, they got to know you're in it. 
And I think when you do that, I think that gives you a different license on how you work with them to get the truth across to them. Because you know, based on your own experiences with other players, what they're hearing, what they're potentially absorbing, but what the negative effects are if they don't buy into what it's going to be when they get up to that next level. And I think you've got to be willing to do that. And I've got enough experience with the guys we've had that you would think it buys you credibility. And it probably does. But at the end of the day, everybody's thinking about themselves. And you've got to show them how it's going to work for them. And the biggest thing you better be making sure of outside of their development is what kind of teammate they are. Because in this day and age in the NBA, you better have superior talent and a superior contract if you're going to make it in the NBA and not be a good teammate, good guy in that locker room. Because there's a lot of guys that can get away with it because of their talent. But they're few and far between than those guys that are sitting right on that fence. That those intangibles, how you are with the stars, how you are with the playing time, how you respond to the coach. Do you pout? Do you whine? Do you complain? Is your agent a problem? I cover all that stuff. And every story that I get, we go in that room. If I don't tell it to the team, I close that door and I tell guys, hey, here's the deal. And you hope that they absorb it. And I kind of miss that, right? I still do it with my guys now that, that are in the pros. But, like, I look forward to that again because it's hard to make it, man. It's hard to be good. It's hard to be in that NBA. And it's even harder to stay. And everybody sees the superstars. Well, man, people don't see what Dwayne Wade did to get where he is. People don't see that. People don't see the Victor Oladipo 6.30 in the morning workouts one day, 12.30 after the NBA Western Conference playoff game was over on a Thursday night, him coming in at 12.30 in the morning to work out. That's what it is. OG Ananobi right now, he's working out anywhere from 6.30 to 7 in the morning. He's coming back again at night, right? And he's in the middle of his summer. But you know what? When, when that contract extension comes around, there's going to be a high two or a low three or maybe even a four leading the number. And that's what it's all about for these guys. So, Coach, I know you like to spend a little time studying and interacting with coaches of different sports. Your wife comes from a, uh, a, a coaching tree and a family with – with a lot of knowledge, as you have some brother-in-laws that coach at pretty high levels and in, in, in Jim and John Harbaugh, what are some things you've picked up from having um, such a tremendous resource and two brother-in-laws there? With those guys, it, it all starts with Joni's mom and dad, Jack and Jackie. And, and Jack is the one that everybody goes to for the coaching advice. The last game he ever coached, he won a national championship at Western Kentucky. And he's just a phenomenal coach and been retired for 20 one years now, but just a phenomenal coach. And Joni's mom, Jackie, has been the caretaker of the family the whole time. So it's an incredible family. It's one of the great honors and privileges of being married to Joni for 30 years. It's just, it's being in this family. It's just incredible. And I think with John and Jim, it's competition, it's energy. They're always wanting to learn. I think both of them want to learn, but they trust who they are. They trust their experiences. I think what we are able to share a lot is different things with staffing. I think we're able to bounce different things off of each other, not necessarily who's who, but characteristics that work, reaching different players. I was just telling a player this today that our guards at Indiana learned so much about, especially our point guards, when Jim or John would be around, and especially Jim with the quarterback position, but even even John, because of the quarterbacks he's had and what Jim's had, they could help our guards so much when it came to footwork seeing the floor versus how a quarterback sees his receivers, eye deception. I mean, you name it. Like, we can have conversations about so many things. And one thing that I've always felt is that sports are very, very similar in so many ways. First off, name one that doesn't start in a stance, right? So, like, there's so many things that we can take. And I've taken way more 
from them when it came to movements or footwork or hand placement or things like that than they've probably taken from me in basketball when it comes to the X and O's. But I think we've really been able to share a lot about running a program, utilizing a staff, dealing with your players, dealing with the problems. And especially, you know, John hasn't been in college in forever, but Jim and myself being in the college programs that we were, you know, dealing with the things that you deal with administratively. But the bottom line with both of those guys is they are not afraid to coach their star player. They are not afraid to hold them accountable. But you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody that's near the end of their roster depth chart that didn't feel that they had a relationship with them too. And I think that's one of the greatest things about those guys, that, that they are they are ball coaches, but they are absolutely about investing, communicating, commitment, and belief in their players. So coach, now we'd like to transition to a segment that we call Triple Threat, where we're going to give you three topics and let you share your thoughts, ideas, experiences, and or suggestions with our listeners. Are you ready? Yep, let's go. Okay, the use of the shot clock for high school basketball. Are you for it or against it and why? Absolutely for it. I think it brings more coaching and more strategy, which, which coaches want, right? Like why are we coaching the game if we don't want more strategy? And when I mean in the game, it brings more in-game strategy. It brings more opportunities to, to, to bring out different things. I'm totally for it. And I've always hoped that college would get to the 24-second clock, 25-second clock, not just because the NBA has it, but because I think the game faster like that and the decision-making game is great. Maybe, maybe not for high school, but I really wish that the shot clock was universal for everybody. Even the people that have been coaching forever, they would enjoy. Now, if you if you enjoyed winning the game 28-26, then I, we can't help you. But, but like they would enjoy all the different strategies and things like that that you get to bring to the table with the shot clock in my mind. So, Coach, in regards to player development, what are the biggest skill deficits that you're seeing in today's game um, you know, I know right now you're studying a lot of basketball. You're watching a lot of basketball. What are some areas that just need fine-tuned a little bit? I'm going to start with not one, two, three, four, five, but I'm going to go with bigger players. Wings, I'm going to go with guards. Bigger players, absolutely, it's being able to defend the dribble past the second or third block. And if you think moving forward, guarding the dribble at the free throw line is going to make anybody any money or is going to make them a, a substantial college defender with the way the game is spread out, it's not going to happen. I think being able to go over both shoulders, which really the number one thing to me, if we had to pick one thing, is the weak hand. And too many players right now are playing on one side of their body. They really are. And like I can drive it right because I'm right-handed, which means I can drop my left shoulder, but I really can't score with the left because I really can't drop my right shoulder. And I think like getting people, bigs especially, getting them very, very flexible in their shoulders and hips, be able to stretch their feet, okay, being able to guard the ball laterally, you know, being able to, to stay low, get back and recover is big. The shooting is big, but I think being able to make plays out of the elbow, whether it's passing, driving, shooting the ball is absolutely crucial. But I think the guarding the dribble is the same thing on the closeout. I think there's a huge deficit right now going on and how well people can get out past 12, 13 feet on a closeout situation or rotating out. And it all goes hand in hand. you got to be comfortable in space. The average NBA possession for a big is going to have at least two, usually three, help and recover situations. And that's with a shot clock that you could be taking the shot with five seconds to go, right? So anybody that's trying to develop their players moving forward, you have to have that. Wings, I think it's not only the shooting, I think it's the be the ability to 
drive the ball and make decisions is a huge one. I think if you're not a great shooter, you got to have a baseline game. There's too many limitations on people around the baseline. I think they're dribble short too much on being able to get to the other side of the board and score. And I think it's the same with guards. I think guards waste dribbles out front, and then they try to broad jump or score and be dribble short around the basket. We've had a saying, one less out front, one more at the rim. And I think people don't understand the space that they have to play with the wings, being able to get down and guard pick and rolls, but also being able to switch out and guard bigger people by being able to front them. And then I think it's way too sporadic with wings on their, not only their ability to make decisions, but being able to take care of the ball, right? You don't have to score just because you're a wing, maybe that next pass and being able to play quick basketball. Then guard wise, it's way too much dribbling in the sense out front. It's not covering enough ground on your dribble. A big one is not being able to extend your feet and go by people. And another big one with guards and wings is, yeah, they're working on their first step, but they're not even close to building that second step. And they end up getting cut off because they didn't cover enough ground on the first, which led to the second. And then I think, again, with guards, because of the over dribbling, they get caught in situations and they don't know how to keep the dribble alive in an extension of the dribble, not just dribbling it, but an extension of the dribble that makes the next pass. Like I see a lot of kids now that can drive the ball baseline and make the baseline drift pass, but they don't ever see the slot. And then they don't have anywhere to go once they've made the pass. Or they don't. there's nobody cutting off the slot, which is going to get a layup for somebody. So everybody's drill, 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 let's throw the baseline drift. Well, why are we throwing it? Because right now the baseline drift man, he may shoot it, but he may have a closeout to drive. He may have the next pass. He doesn't even need a dribble. All those decisions come into play. But I, but if I was going to sum it all up, it's there are not nearly enough two-handed, two-shoulder, two-hip, two-footed players that you don't have to be equal at going to your weekend, but it can't be 100% and one and 30% and the other. You're just not going to go anywhere. And I don't think there's nearly enough of that being done. And that's at the highest level of college basketball, the middle level of college basketball, high school, even the NBA. Because too many people are getting way more concerned about what you can do for their team and how you play X and O wise on both ends of the floor rather than developing your skills to give you a future in it. And at the same time, build your confidence because you have those skills that you didn't have. Okay. Third question. What are three things that a Tom Crean coach player must bring to the gym every day? Energy. You want them to compete, but not everybody is a natural competitor. But if they've got energy and you've got other competitors in there, it's usually going to bring out more competitiveness out of them, right? So I would say energy. I would want competitiveness to be that. I want somebody that's coming in there with an open mind to getting better. And that's, that's getting harder and harder to find, especially in this portal world. There are so many kids, they've had so many coaches, and they've been able to do what they want to do. And I'm sure you're seeing it at the high school level, because definitely at the college level, there's so many things like they don't think they have to change. So I want somebody that has an open mind in this, because I'm not a coach that does a lot of no. I was a coach, I think, that did a lot more not yet, right? Not yet. We're not there yet. But that means we've got to get to that place. So I want an open-minded player. I want a player that's got a lot of energy, and I want a player that they've got a level of fearlessness. They're going to hit for a rebound. They're going to go for a 50-50. The loose ball is going to hit the ground, and they're not going to treat it like a snake just got thrown there. They're going to run out of the way. They're going to dive on it. So I think that competitiveness is part of it. 
But it all comes down to you can have all that, and if you don't want to see your teammates be successful, your ceiling gets set, and I'm going to be on you all practice long because I wasn't tolerating guys that, that were going to be pouty or moody when their teammate was doing a good job and they weren't having a good day. I just wasn't going to accept that, and I never will. And I think any coach that's worth their salt, if you're teaching life skills as well as basketball skills, you're getting players to understand the value of their teammates, no matter where they are as a player. And no matter what they average, no matter what they do, they've got to understand the value of their teammates. All right, Coach, so we're going to throw in one bonus question, and I hesitate asking you this because I know early on in the podcast we talked about health and taking care of our bodies and eating the right things, but I do know that you and I – we have something in common in regards to our love for occasional fast food. Yeah, I've cut back, but I'm, I'm pretty, but go ahead. I think I know where this is going. Go ahead. So I, I just want to know Tom Crean's top three fast food restaurants and what are you getting on the menu? All right. I'm going to start with what I don't get much anymore because there's not one near where I live, but it's going to start with Little Caesars and pepperoni pizza. All right. I'm going to start with that. And then... I'm going to go to Taco Bell, and if they got the Mexican pizza, I'm going to get that. But if they don't, then I'm going to get a couple of hard tacos and some nachos. So I'm going to go to Taco Bell. And then my third one, that could go a couple different ways. I'm probably going to go to Burger King and get two regular cheeseburgers. Now, if if there's a McDonald's nearby, I'm going to go get the McDonald's fries and the Diet Coke there. But if not, I'm just going to get the two cheeseburgers that are charbroiled and a Diet Coke, and I'm going to be happy. And I'm going to get extra pickles, no matter what, and light ketchup. Coach, I don't know about you, but the McDonald's Cokes just hit differently than any other no Cokes, question. don't they? Yeah, but the problem I have with them now, they were a dollar, right? Like, any size Coke was a dollar. Now I go to pick one up, it's two thirteen, right? Like, kind of, it, 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 it was great. But I'm I, 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 there's no question that I equate price into my choices. There's no question about that. That's why I start with Little Caesars. Well, well, Coach, we got one more question for you before we get to that. Uh, just want to thank you for spending some time with us on the Holding Court Podcast. I'm, and I say this with all sincerity, for you to take time out of your day to share your experiences in and around the game of basketball with our listeners says a lot about you, not only as a coach, uh, but a person as well. Uh, and we, we want to thank you for that. Well, I've enjoyed it, and I was looking forward to it. And I'm glad we were able to work out tonight, and it's been great. And I hope people... Enjoy it. Because like I said, I, I don't come up with my cliche book, right? Like this is real life stuff. And um, it's so important because I was very fortunate at a young age to have people that told me the truth, even when I didn't want to hear it. The more you go up the ladder, they may be saying, they're not always saying it to you, right? And you've got to have people that will continue to tell you the truth and make you better. Unfortunately, I've had some, but at the end of the day, it's like, man, I wish I'd even had more. And I think the most important thing we can do is understand we're all Try, no matter what we're doing, we're trying to make people better. And and it's not easy. And there's a lot of things that get in the way of it. But you've got to remember why you're trying to do it, no matter what. So, Coach, it's clear to me, and I'm sure anyone that's listened to this podcast, of how passionate you are about coaching in the game of basketball. I can remember talking to you last year at the clinic, and, and, and t- you're telling me how much you, you want to coach again, and, and you want to get back in the game. I, I guess my question for you is this. With everything surrounding the game right now, from the transfer portal 
to NIL, you name it. I mean, what? Why would you want to get back into it? I mean, you seem to have a great thing going right now uh, with what you're doing. Um, you know, the TV work you're doing, you know, getting to go around the different practices, see different coaches do different things. And, and you know, I, I've heard some stories uh, th- this summer regarding some coaches that have recently gotten out of it, and they don't miss it because of the way the landscape of college basketball has changed. But, you know, listening to you, you don't necessarily share that same thought process. Why? Uh, I think it's what we talked about. I think I think I love the court, right? I love the I love the development. The games were the, the day before and then the day of leading up to the game were absolute misery. I don't remember. I don't miss that at all. And but there's no question I missed that two hours and ten minutes. You know, two hours, whatever it is, that competition. I miss that. But I really, really miss watching tape or watching a player play and recruiting and then figuring out do I have a vision or not for them right and 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 not try to trick myself like if I do hey here's I'm going to sell it and it's the same thing with coaching a guy every day like I love being out there making them better and I love that part of it and with the the way the NIL is now with the way things are the portal you know what you deal with it right like you deal with it it's like all this conference realignment everybody that's complaining nobody cares I mean no nobody cares what we think I mean, the bottom line is those decisions are getting made. There's a lot of different reasons they're getting made, but it ain't got nothing to do with us, right? So you deal with what it is. You don't spend time pontificating or worrying about what it isn't, and you do everything you can do to make it better, right? And that's where your philosophy comes from. So I miss that. I I miss the uh, practices a lot. Like, I love that I'm learning, but when I get I think my passion for making guys better, getting a team to come together, getting them to understand how important their teammates are to each other, working with people, working with people that have a uh, a like mindset, right? That, that, that it, you don't have to all be the same, but you got to have a like mindset. Like there's got to be, we're trying to get to the same place. And I think that's what I want to do. I think I'm going to be way smarter the next time that I do it. But I also love television because I love learning. And I love being able to bring things to a broadcast from what I did or from what I see. And when somebody tells me that they learned something, when somebody tells me that they got a better understanding of it, that makes me feel good. Because like, that's what I'm trying to do, right? Because that's what I want. I don't want to watch a game that I don't have a notebook with. I want to watch a game where I've got paper there with me. So I'm going to learn something and write it down. Podcast, game, whatever it is. So I'm not, you know, when you've coached and you've dealt with all the cheating and, you, and you've dealt with the people that, that you, you work your tail off and you realize, man, you were never in there because of what somebody was doing to get the player, that stuff can wear you out. I think there's, for every coach that's looking at getting out right now, I think there's also a couple that are re-energized by this because now they have more of an even level playing field. And I think the playing field where it's it was so narrow, you know, depending on where you were as a program, that, that playing field is more broad now. And it puts even more pressure. And it's not really showing up yet, but it's going to show up. It's going to show up. If you can't make your players better, and no matter how long you have them, if you can't improve their skills, and if you think you're just going to win on X's and O's and talent, yeah, you might, but you're not going to win consistently. No matter what you do, no matter how much your team changes out, it's not about how quick it changes out. It's about how good are you at making them better, meeting them where they're at, and making them better no matter what. And that's what I miss. Thanks for listening to Holding Court, presented by the Ohio High School Basketball Coaches Association. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, 
Keep up with us on Twitter and Facebook at Ohio BK Coaches, on Instagram at OHSBCA1947, and online at www.oh.nhsbca.org. Until next time.